My grandma always said things go better when you pray first. Let's do that. Heavenly Father, use me tonight as the instrument that I will speak through me. So whatever results that you desire here tonight will be accomplished in all things. Thy will, not mine, be done. Amen. What I love most about AA, and I love everything about AA, you will know that before I'm done, uh, <laughs> is the simplicity of it. There's a line in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous in the chapter, Working with Others, that bottom lines for me, the simplicity of AA. And what that line says simply is this, remind the prospect that his recovery is not dependent upon people, it is dependent upon his relationship with God. The single most important fact in my life as I stand here tonight, and the only reason I'm standing here or anywhere else tonight is that I got a power in my life that I choose to call God, who does for me one day at a time what I could never do for myself. If I had the power to quit drinking on my own, I'd have never come to AA. Why should I? Lack of power is my dilemma. Not a lack of information. Okay? Not a lack of friends. Not a lack of fellowship, a lack of power. If I had the power to quit drinking on my own, I'd have never come to AA. Why should I? That prayer that I said reminds me of two things that I believe are vital and crucial to me staying here. See, left to my own devices, I would surely have destroyed myself years ago. My two best drinking buddies are not in prison. They're not in a mental institution. They're in Oakland Cemetery in Sandusky, Ohio, and they died very young men as a direct result of, of the disease of alcoholism. That prayer reminds me of two things I believe are vital and crucial to me staying here. First and foremost, the reason I'm in Nashville tonight is to do God's will, not mine. And it also serves to remind me that he is in charge here tonight, and as always, thank God, I am not. Good evening. My name is Kent Coleman. I'm an alcoholic. First and foremost, um, I want to say thank you uh, to this committee for your kindness, for your hospitality. I want to thank Steve for being an example of how service is done in this program, for staying in contact with me um, over the last year or so, um, and being the power of example of AA that he is. Um, I want to thank John. I want to take John back to Ohio. We need us a John. Nashville, y'all got a real treasure here. This is a great guy. Um, love John to death. Um, I want to thank this committee for your hard work and your dedication. Things like this just don't happen overnight. I happen to be on some committees that do this kind of work. And on Sunday, when we all go home and, and part and go our separate ways, the committee will begin working on next year starting on Sunday, because I know how this works. So let's give this committee a hand for what they've done this weekend. And I love AA meetings. I'm like the little boy that came home from his first day of school and his daddy met him at the door and said, well, boy, did you learn anything? Little boy said, apparently not. They told me I had to come back tomorrow. You know what I mean? And that's, that's how it is for me and Alcoholics Anonymous. I just keep coming back tomorrow, you know. Uh, I want to talk for a moment to our new friends here. Because there's been a lot of talk. Um, and you heard it up here about family. And if you heard Ralph and Ronnie today talk about if you knew in here, you just got yourself a whole new family. I got family in this room. It's full of family in here. There's some people in this room tonight. Uh, Ralph and Ronnie here from Los Angeles. Ralph and Ronnie are as much family to me as my blood kin. 
and they have been for many, many years, and we do life together, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And see, you get those kinds of relationships in here. You get those kinds. Deb is here. She talks to me. That's my sissy. She come in in Cleveland. You know, if you stay around, it's like Ralph said today, you'll know what you're in for, but we mean that in a positive way. No, you ever hear people say, boy, if I had wrote down all the things I wanted when I got here, I would have really sold myself short. You know why that is? Because the human mind is incapable of comprehending the richness and the fullness of the grace of God. That is the reason. That is the reason. It is beyond my ability to comprehend. So if you're new in here, I want to share some things with you. When I came up in here, I had never been to AA before. I had never, I didn't know nothing about AA. I didn't know what an open meeting was, a closed meeting was. I didn't know what a sponsor was, a home group. I didn't know a big book from a Ram McNally Atlas when I came up in here. No, I did not know anybody who had ever been here or at least would admit to having been here, right? So I came to AA. I am grateful for the longtime members of Alcoholics Anonymous in the state of Ohio. When I came into Alcoholics Anonymous in my home group, we had four members who got sober in the mid-1940s. To walk into my home group on a Friday night and there to be over 200 years of continuous sobriety at one table with four people was a common thing. It was a common thing where I came from. And I'm very grateful that nobody beat me up or made me feel less than because I didn't understand this and I didn't understand how to behave. When I came in AA, I had the word mother wrapped around every other word I said. I didn't understand it. I didn't come here from Sunday school. I came here from the street. And, and nobody beat me up for that. See, nobody sprinkled pixie dust over my head when I walked into an AA meeting, and now I understand all of this stuff. Thank God for the love and the patience of the people who were here. Nobody, where I live at, you know, people who got sober after I did say stuff like this. Boy, they sure did. They was hard on us when we came here, told us to sit down and shut up. No, they didn't. No, they did not. It's amazing how this stuff is. You know, they didn't. No, they were firm with us, you know, but, but it was done out of patience, tolerance, kindness, and love. The watch words they talk about in our book. So if you're new here tonight, see, I'm a street guy. Since I had never been here before, you stay alive in the street by watching and listening, not running your mouth. I say something to my sponsees. I think I'll share it here tonight. There's a big difference between listening and waiting for your turn to talk. Y'all understand what I'm saying? I'm just saying. But I started watching and listening. And I saw two very distinct groups of people when I came to AA. Those who were staying sober continuously and those who were not. So those who were not, we'll call them group one. In and out, in and out. And trust me, I'm not beating up people who've been in and out. We don't shoot our wounded in here. But when people in and out, in and out, every time they came back in from being out, they looked worse than the last time they came back in from being out. Those who were fortunate enough to come back. No, I ain't seen nobody come back up in here driving a new BMW and passing out $50 bills and talking about how good it was out there. Right? They were restless, irritable, and discontented, and they talked of terror, bewilderment, frustration, and despair. We'll call them group one. 
Okay? And then we had this group two. And if you've been here any amount of time this weekend, you have seen the group two people in action greeting at the door, working at the registry. You see them at your local groups, don't you? Making coffee, setting up the tables and chairs, putting out the literature. They talk about God, big book, step spirituality, helping others, and enjoying life in sobriety. We'll call them group two. Now, I am no rocket scientist, as my story is going to prove. But it sure looked to me like the people in group two had a better deal than the people in group one. Right? So now, keeping this simple, right, I asked myself, what is it that the people in group two are doing that the people in group one are not? So the people in group two had some things in common. They had something called a sponsor. Now, I used to play softball for Cronin's Tavern. They was our sponsor. And... uh we got free clothes and beer out of that deal. I thought, well, maybe this AA ain't so bad, right? And you told me what a sponsor was. You told me that a sponsor was somebody who has working knowledge and experience with the 12 steps as outlined in our book, who is willing to take the time to walk that journey with me, not in front of me, not behind me, but with me, right? And is a living demonstration of those principles in their life who can show me through the power of their example what my life can be like if I do what they do. I have sponsorship in Alcoholics Anonymous today. I'm sponsored by Bob D. in Las Vegas, Nevada. I still have the loving and kind and spiritual support of Ken B. in Cleveland and Bill F. in Lorraine, Ohio, the two men who raised me at AA. Bill um, is incapacitated by his health now, and I no longer really have access to him, um, which is why I went to Bob when I moved to Vegas. Um, Bill has 50 years, Kenny has 42, Bob has 35. That's a lot of sobriety that is at my disposal on a daily basis if I choose to use it. If you're new in here, I'm going to share something with you. Having a sponsor is a great thing. Being sponsorable is even better. I sponsor a lot of men in a lot of places in Alcoholics Anonymous. Some guy asked me recently, Kent, how many people do you sponsor? I said, oh, about half of them. (laughs) Is that not the truth? See, the only results I've ever gotten in Alcoholics Anonymous has come from actions I've taken, not people, places, and things that I've known. Okay? I like to do this sometimes. There's a lot of people in here tonight, and there's a lot of new people here tonight. If you don't mind, would everybody who would be willing to sponsor a new person in AA, would you please raise your hand? Thank you very much. If you knew and you ain't got a sponsor, I just hooked you up. No one ever need leave an AA meeting without the benefit of sponsorship. And everybody laughs, but I do that for a reason. If you like me, when you came up in here, I didn't know if you had 10 years or 10 minutes. I don't know you. Nor do I know if you're willing to help a guy like me who didn't even feel he deserved any help. So if you're new here tonight and you don't have sponsorship, the help that you need just identified itself. What you do with that information is up to you. It's up to you. It was, uh, some guys got shipwrecked, and they were out at sea, floating around in a life raft in salt water. And after some time goes by, you know, they started to get sick from not having any water. And uh, after a few days, a boat goes by, and they're waving and asking for help. And there's a guy up on the boat saying, let down your bucket, let down your bucket. And they keep yelling for help, and he keeps saying, let down your bucket. 
So they dropped the bucket in the water. They was drifting in and pulled it up, and it was full of clear, fresh water, right? But they had to let down their bucket. If you knew up in here tonight, let down your bucket. Let down your bucket. You are sitting in the middle of the answer. I have watched people die who sit with us in these meetings on a daily basis because their alcoholism goes untreated. Let down your bucket. Let down your bucket. Another thing that those people had in common was something called a home group, right? I was one of them newcomers. You ever hear this? All the groups are my home group. You ever hear that one? Right, right. Because I don't want y'all getting too close. And I certainly don't want any responsibility, God forbid, right? And so I got this home group, right? And then I signed the book, the, the home group roster. And a guy looks at me and he says, I got some bad news for you, son, but we have no interest in your autograph. What we want is your service. And he threw some keys at me. He said, these are the keys to the coffee locker. Next week, we want you to come in here, make the coffee, set up the tables and chairs, and put out the literature. We want you here by 6 o'clock to set up for this 8 o'clock meeting. I looked at this guy like he had three heads, and I said, how long do I have to do that? And he looked at me and smiled and said, we'll get back to you. And uh, three years later, I asked him again, how long do I have to right? But what a wonderful thing that was. I began to get involved and be a part of. If you knew in here, I want to share something with you. There's an area of service for everyone who comes into the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous. God don't make no jump. There's an area of service. I tell my sponsees, get in where you fit in. I've, I've been the institutional committee chair in North Central District in Ohio. Um, I've, been involved, I've been shoulder deep in Alcoholics Anonymous and service since I got here. Get involved. Find out where you fit in and get in. Everybody has something to bring to Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's what I like to call the total package in Alcoholics Anonymous. Sponsorship, big book and steps, home group and service. In my experience, which is the only thing I'm allowed to share from behind the podium, I have yet to meet an alcoholic of our type. And if you don't know what an alcoholic of our type is, read the book. I've yet to meet an alcoholic of our type who has taken that total package, applied it to their life one day at a time to the best of their ability, which is all that's required here. If you knew here, I'm going to take you off the hook right now. Perfection is not required here. God only requires that I do the best I can this day with what I have. And if I am willing to do that, no matter where I fall in the spectrum, I can be happy, joyous, and free. I can have that now. There's no time limit on happiness. The results I get in here will come in direct proportion to the actions that I take. They will come in direct proportion to the actions that I take. So, so if you know, so I have yet to see somebody go on the flip side of the coin. However, I have yet to see an alcoholic of our type come in here, ignore those things, and stay sane, sober, or happy for any appreciable length of time. The simplicity of Alcoholics Anonymous. Those who do get, and those who don't, don't. And it's just that simple. My sponsor Bill told me when I was new, I don't know about you, but I never sat in a bar, watched somebody across the bar room drink a drink, and thought I was going to get drunk watching him drink. That's just as ridiculous as me coming in here, sitting in a chair, watching you get a sponsor, work the steps, get a home group and help others, and think that somehow, magically, it's going to rub off on me. Nowhere in our book does it say, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of attendance. 
Those who do get and those who don't, don't. It's just that simple. I identified myself as an alcoholic. I didn't know what that was when I came here either. I always had a definition of alcoholism prior to AA. I like to say it was a sliding definition because as my disease progressed, I kept fitting my definitions. And so as a result of that, I had to keep changing them. If you'd asked me as a teenager what an alcoholic was, I'd have said somebody just drunk every day. I don't know where I got that from. TV's, I don't know, but that was it, right? As a teenager, I became a daily drinker. Er, that ain't it. I said an alcoholic is somebody who misses work, school, or important things in life because of drinking. It interferes with one's priorities in life. Yes, that certainly must be an alcoholic. As a teenager, alcohol began to interfere with work, school, and important things in life. Er, that ain't it. So I give it a little more thought. I do a lot of thinking. I'll talk to you all about that later. And I finally come up with it. I said, an alcoholic is somebody who goes to jail because of drinking. Yes, that certainly must be it. As you hear in a few minutes, I really had to change that one. <laughs> By the time I staggered into the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous, my definition of an alcoholic, y'all remember Otis on the Andy Griffith show? <laughs> y'all remember Otis? Otis' clothes was always wrinkled. He always had a pint on him. He was in and out of jail. I watched every episode of the Andy Griffith show, even the ones in color. I remember Otis working no place, right? Yes, that's certainly. I was in England speaking at a conference, and I asked them that. Y'all remember Otis on the Andy Griffith show? And 2,000 people went, no. no. <laughs> that set me back about five minutes, I'm going to tell you. I thought they had cable. I don't know. I Long trench coats, stocking cap on, drinking wild Irish rolls, mad dog Thunderbird out of brown paper sack, sleeping under a cardboard box. Yes, that certainly must be an alcoholic. The reason that's my definition when I got here, that's the only thing that had not yet happened to me. If I didn't have a family that I had, that is exactly where I would have been. I can stand here in all honesty tonight and tell you, I drank in Wino's Alley with them old men in Sandusky, Ohio. Only difference between me and them, when it got dark, there was somebody that opened the back door for me and there was nobody left to do it for them. I came into alcohol. I had the nerve to sit in an AA meeting when I was new and poke my chest out and say, you know, because, you know, I like to compare, not identify when I got here. I said, you know, I ain't never been homeless. There was a man at that meeting, God rest his soul, his name was Jim Redmond. He was 53 years sober. He looked at me and he said, really? He said, son, he said, I got some bad news for you. He said, if you grown and you live in your mom and daddy's house and you ain't paying no rent, you homeless. That man hurt my feelings. <laughs> I hope I didn't step on no toes in here tonight, but yeah. the truth will set you free, right? What is this thing called alcoholism? Y'all heard Ralph and Ronnie today. See, mental, physical, spiritual, threefold. Mental, mental obsession to drink. Obsession, thought so strong it will override or overcome any thinking that I as a human being can raise as a defense against it. What are some of the mental defenses I tried to raise against taking the first drink? Well, I tried common sense. My grandmother explained to me when I got sober why that didn't work. She said, boy, you weren't born with any, apparently. I tried self-knowledge. Well, I did this last week. This happened, so I will do this this week. Same thing happened again. That didn't work. I tried fear of consequences I might face if I drank. Anybody try to stay sober? Me and Bill's story. Bill, Bill said, fear sobered me for a bit. 
right? I used to lay awake in the morning in my late teens, I mean late teens, lay in the bed and mentally make a list of all the reasons why I ain't drinking today. If I drink today, I'm going to get kicked off the team, get kicked out the house. My girlfriend going to leave me later on. Dirty urine, I'm going to penitentiary, lose my job, you know, flunk out of school. All these things true in my life at one time or another. And if you drink like I drank, you have three or four I'm going on simultaneously, right? And I lay in the bed and I look at it and, and I make a decision based on truth. I ain't drinking because I don't want any of this stuff in my life. I didn't want it no more then than I would want it today. I meant it as much as I mean it today. And then I get out of the bed. <laughs> right. And about five seconds later, another thought would come floating in my head. And it usually goes something like this. Y'all check that. In our book it says, Along with this sound reasoning, parallel to this sound reasoning, ran some insanely, listen to the word, insanely trivial excuse to drink. Because here's the kind of thought I would have. It's Friday. <laughs> it's Friday. Right? I've worked all week, which for me is three days. Right? And who do these people think they are anyway? I'm grown. This is the United States of America. Is anybody in here like me? And I pick up a drink and I take a drink. And the second part of the disease Silkworth talks about happens. He called it the phenomenon of craving, a physical allergy to alcohol that one out of ten people who drink will have. Quick little story I could tell you about the phenomenon of craving. True story. I'm out riding my lawnmower on a 90-degree day, so is my non-alcoholic next-door neighbor. I'm watching him. He got hot and thirsty. He shut his lawnmower off. He got, got off of it. He walked over to his deck. It is full of cold beer. He flips it open. He pulls one out, he pops the top on her, he sucks her down, and I'm telling you, nobody in here will believe this, but I've seen this with my own two eyes. With that full cooler of beer still sitting there, that man actually got back on his lawnmower and finished cutting his grass. I'm ten years sober, and I'm next door going, what is wrong with you? The difference between me and my neighbor, if I get off of my lawnmower and I pop the top on a cold one and I suck her down, it does not quench my thirst. What it does to me and maybe to you is it make me thirstier. And grass cutting is over at the Coleman house. My lawnmower be sitting in that same spot two weeks from now when I get out of the county because that's how I roll. This is insane. You have these. I have this thought, this Friday thing, right? Three felonies later that night, right? I end up in front of some judge, my parents, some coach, my boss, somebody looking at me and saying, what were you thinking? How could you do this? You knew what was at stake. It was Friday? 
And that don't even sound right to me. Such is the such is the power of obsession, is it not? Such is the power of obsession. When my job, when my family, when my freedom, and eventually when my life depended on me not drinking, I drank. I don't believe in that saying, don't drink no matter what. I drink no matter what. If I had the power not to, I wouldn't be standing here tonight. You'd have a different speaker. Spiritual malady, soul sickness. At the age of 14, I made a conscious decision. I wanted no God in my life. Not because I didn't believe that there was one. I came to the conclusion I didn't need it and you do. The spiritual malady, the soul sickness. As a result of my lack of power, I feel the necessity to control, manipulate the people, places, and things in my life so that they will fulfill the needs that I have. I have an unrelenting, never-ending obsession with me. Our book talks about this emptiness inside, the spiritual malady. I'll talk more about that. This disease of mind, body, and spirit is called alcoholism. And if you got it, and I don't know if you do, but I definitely do, and I don't treat it, death, imprisonment, or commitment are guaranteed me, says that in our book. And if you're new here and you're skeptical about that, stick around and watch what happens to the people who don't. I'm 54 years old. I was born in the city of Sandusky. I was the second of three boys. I was raised in a Christian home. I was taught the difference between right and wrong before my feet ever hit the grass in the front yard. I just find a mother and father that have ever graced this earth. I'm the son of Pete and Evelyn Coleman. Um, spiritually principled living was not, was not only taught in our house. It was demonstrated. It was lived. My, uh, my father worked for General Motors. My mother worked for Chrysler. I'm retired from Ford. There was a lot of craziness in the house, but we had really nice cars. But anyway... I had the kind of parents who absolutely insisted upon seeing that we had everything in life that was denied them when they grew up. We went on family vacations. We wore $100 tennis shoes in the early 1970s, um, 10 speeds, mini bikes, um, anything that we asked for within reason from our mom and dad, we got. And uh, perchance mom and dad said no, we went to our grandmother who lived with us because the word no was not in her vocabulary. To our new friends here tonight, spiritually principled living did not originate in Akron, Ohio in 1935. We were taught and shown how to live these principles in our lives when we were little boys. In our house, they said, honesty is the best policy. A real man is always honest with himself and other people. In our house, maybe in yours, we got automatic whoopings when we got caught lying. Did that happen to anybody else's house in here? That's step one. I learned the importance of the principle of honesty at the end of a hickory stick. My mother said to me, uh, Kenny, come here. I'm concerned about you. Contrary to what you believe, the sun does not rise when you wake up and set when you go to bed. Look out the window and tell me what you see. Sky, grass, trees, birds, cars, flock, people. She said, you think this just popped up out of nowhere? Kenny, there's a power that's greater than you that created all this, and all you have to do is be willing to be. In our house... Mama used to say, if you will make a decision to put your life in the hands of the power that created all of this, in my house they called that power God. She said, you will always have what you need no matter what happens outside or around you. My mother was teaching us the answer is inside, not outside, step three.
In our house, they told us, anytime you got a problem, no matter how bad you think it is, come talk to us about it. A problem shared is a problem half solved. You're only as sick as your secrets. Anybody ever heard that before? That's steps four and five. My mother used to say the biggest room in a human being's life is the room for improvement. There are no perfect people. We are people who make progress. If you can make C's, you can make B's. If you can make B's, you can make A's. And if you'll ask the power that created all of this to help you in any positive endeavor in your life, the power will always help you. That's what the power is, and that's what the power does. This is step six and seven. In our home, they told us anytime you hurt, harm, or wrong someone else, go make right the wrong you've done. If you owe time, give it. If you owe an apology, make it. If you owe money, pay it. Clean up your mess. That's what responsible people do. That's steps eight and nine, is it not? My mom used to say you can never go forward in this life if you don't know where you are today and what you need to work on to get wherever it is you want to go. When I was a senior in high school, I read a book about Socrates. I took Greek, and in that book, Socrates said the uninventoried life is a waste. Step ten. Our grandmother told us the secret to having a good day was very simple. When you wake up in the morning, slide out on the bed onto your knees and say one word, two words, one word, please. As you go throughout the day and you don't know what to do, ask the power that created all of this to help you. And at night before you get back in the bed, hit your knees again and say two words, thank you, step 11. And in our house, they told us the greatest thing that a person could do with their life was not acquire money and material things. It was to be of service to other people. We were taught to follow the golden rule. Talk to folk the way you want to be talked to. Treat folk the way you want to be treated. Offer to share with others what you have before you have your own. Respect your elders. Be of service to your fellow man. Step 12. When I got on the bus to go to kindergarten, I was already armed with a set of principles, spiritual in nature, that I recognized immediately when I had a program of Alcoholics Anonymous. If you're new in here, where I live, I hear stuff like this in meetings. Boy, them people out there sure could use what we got in here. Where do you think we got it? <laughs> Not only do people out there live like that, a lot of people, check this out. They don't expect a pat on the back for it either. I watch a guy across the street shovel the elderly people's driveway. He don't come over to my house and say, hey, did you see me over there shoveling people? Really? This is the only place in the world where we got to tell new people, now we want you to do something nice today, but if you tell somebody, it doesn't count. <laughs> Such is the depth of the selfishness and self-centeredness of an alcoholic like me. I want a pat on the back for doing what I'm supposed to do all along. All along. I was shy, insecure, and afraid as a kid. Um, I was a, uh, a middle child. I had an older brother and a younger brother. And uh, growing up, I was full of resentment, self-pity. Older brother was the firstborn son and everybody's favorite. My little brother was the baby. Coochie cuckoo. Everybody loved that baby. And I'm standing over here to the side saying, when am I going to get mine? And this is a very young time. I can tell you today, Clancy, Ralph talked about Clancy, talked about disease of perception. I, honestly, I was never treated any differently than my brothers. Actually, I was my mother's favorite. But I don't see things that way. I live in my head. I don't live in the real world with the rest of y'all. Huh? So growing up, I'm full of resentments. Um, like Ronnie did, I was an avid reader, daydreamer, TV watcher, right? Could read well before I went to school. No? And what I realize now that my life, as it was, the reality of my life, was an untenable place for me. And I, so I start looking and seeking what? I start to seek, seek ease and comfort, is what Silkworth said. I start 
looking for something to fix this thing in here. I start looking for outside solutions for inside problems. And if you're new here today, there is no such thing. A spiritual malady, and our book says it, does it not? When we address the spiritual, the mental and the physical will get better. I cannot put the cart ahead of the horse. I'm one of them people that used to go around saying, when I stop doing what I've been doing, I'm going to get right with God. If I could stop doing what I've been doing, I would not need God. Anybody in here understand that? I'm putting the card in front of the horse. The spiritual has to be addressed. Yeah, I don't understand none of that. My first real drink of choice is my older brother. I come from a football family. Some families do art. Some families do music. My family do football on Saturdays and Sundays. My father played at West Virginia State. My uncle Bo played at Penn State. I had two cousins play the National Football League for over ten years. That's what we do. I had a brother by the time he was 16 years old, was six foot two, weighed 215 pounds, he could run a 4440 on a cinder track and tennis shoes, uh, and he was a tailback. That's a big tailback in the early 70s, and uh, he uh, agreed to go to Ohio State University his junior year to play for Woody Hayes. And um, I idolized my brother. I followed him everywhere that he went. I lived in his shadow. I had ease and comfort in his shadow. I am so terrified. I, I, you know, we talk about it a lot in here. I'm a guy who just is totally just disconnected. I was always disconnected. So I'm looking for somewhere, someplace, somebody, something to fix this thing in here. And um, when I was with him, I was Brian's brother. Not Kent. I'm Brian's brother. And I'm perfectly content with that. Um, on September the 5th of 1972, uh, my brother suffered a head injury in a football scrimmage in Massillon, Ohio. We used to scrimmage the Massillon Tigers. If you know high school football, you know who they are. And um, nine hours of brain surgery on Monday. He died Wednesday, September the 72, the age of 17. I remember like yesterday. I could tell you everything that happened that day from the minute I opened my eyes to the Does that make me alcoholic? Absolutely not. Stop any car out here on the street. People live, people die, tragedies happen. Life happens. How I react to life is the problem. And um, what did that do to me? It broke my heart. I almost killed my mom and daddy, and I ain't even going to tell you what it did to my grandpa. Um, after my brother's gone, um, I got to start hanging around people my own age. These guys I've known since I'm two. Go to school with them, go to church with them, I play ball with them. I know you guys all my life. And I feel absolutely and totally disconnected. At the age of 13, we standing on the street corner. Topics of conversation among our crew in 1972 at the age of 13 was three things. Drinking beer, smoking weed, and climbing in and out of girls' bedroom windows in the middle of the night. And I was batting zero, zero, zero. <laughs> I had no idea what they was talking about, but I can't let them know that, right? Why? I was addicted to acceptance long before I took a drink of alcohol. Anybody relate to that? I'm looking for that outside thing to fix this inside problem. And so I don't tell them I don't know what they're talking about. Y'all remember them dogs they used to put in the back window of the car with the hair to go like this? That's me, right? Oh, yeah, I did that. Oh, yeah, I was over there. I'm 13 years old, a liar, a fake, and a phony. I'm telling people I've been places I ain't been. I know people I don't know, and I've done things I haven't done. I am willing to go to any length to gain your acceptance. So I become an inveterate liar. My life becomes a lie. That's a hard way to live, ain't it? Every time you walk up on somebody, you gotta try to remember what the last, what you told them the last time you seen them. 
in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, it says that we are like an actor that lives a double life. I'm the guy that lives quadruple lives. There's a kent for every scenario and situation that I'm in. And sometimes they get kind of crossed up. It's very confusing. Old Mose Yoder used to say, if I always tell the truth, I don't have to remember what I said. A lot of, lot of value in that, isn't it? But uh, that's what I'm like at the age of 13. Um, I'm just scared of everything. I'm scared of girls. I'm scared of everything. My mom used to talk to me a lot after my brother died, and she would say, like, Kenny, God's been so good to you. You're going to have a wonderful life and help people and blah, 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 blah. My mother was the president of Ohio Baptist Women's Convention. Those, a lot of these famous people in religion that you see on TV, them people been in my house. My mother was the highest-ranking woman in Chrysler Corporation from kindergarten through a master's degree at Bowling Green. I worked for Ford Motor Company in Dearborn. They called us the best and the brightest. I've never been around anybody as smart as I was. My mother was the most brilliant human being I've ever met. And my mother was a power. God rest her soul. If she walked into this room right now, it's bright. She glowed with it. And, um, and she told me, she said, you'll have a really good. And I looked at my mother like, she, are you kidding me? Here's what I want out of life. I want mine. I want to get it my way. And I'm going to need you to leave me alone while I'm doing it because I ain't going to do it the way you do it. And my mom would get that sad look on her face and shake her head. And she'd say, you know, Kenny, you don't get it. And I put my finger in her face. I said, no, you the one who don't get it. If you don't think my way is going to work, get out the way and watch me roll. No. And that's what I'm like at the age of 13. One of the gifts God did give me is I did well in school. Now, that's a gift because I didn't work for it. I didn't earn it. It, school came easy for me. Like Ronnie talked about earlier, I was well prepared for school when I got there. So it came easy for me. So I'm a straight-A student in school. So my sponsor, Bill, told me when I was new, he said, anytime you are in a room alone, all your enemies are there. And what he was referring to is my thinking. I have some problems in that area. So I'm sitting in study hall in high school, at Sandusky High School, and I'm watching people do their homework in study hall, which is what you're supposed to do. And I had a visit from the enemy, my thinking. And here's the thought that come to me that day. Remember, just like it was yesterday. These people in here breaking their neck trying to get B's and C's, taking general math and science. I'm taking calculus, physics, fourth year Latin, fourth year English. I'm sleeping through class and getting straight A's. You know, it just might be entirely possible that I know everything. Y'all laughing because y'all thought the same thing. I had no evidence to support that thought as being true. I accepted it as a fact because this is how I roll. Left the room and took action on it. I actually went home and shared that with my mom and dad. I thought they ought to know because I thought things around the house would change once this information got out. They was watching the evening news with Walter Cronkite. And uh, my dad came up. I was scared of my daddy. My daddy played football when they didn't have face masks. And my dad came up off that couch, and I thought it probably would be a good idea not to wait to see what he wanted. And, and I never asked him to the day he died, but what he must have been thinking is, hey, look what we got in the house. I'm going to kill it. Right? I, I, so, I broke for the screen door. I got out the screen door and closed it. He's right behind me. And I turned around. And my dad looked me in the eye through that screen door. And he pointed his finger at me. He said, boy, I'm going to tell you something. He said, you're going to have a hard life, Kenny. He said, because nobody knows everything. And I laughed in his face. That was a significant day in my life because on that day I closed the door. 
Our book says honesty, open-mindedness, and willingness are the three essentials of recovery. They are honestly the three essentials of right living, aren't they? A closed mind cannot learn and it cannot grow. And on that day, I recognize the day that on that day, all growth stopped. All growth stopped. Everybody in my life became an idiot. My mother, my father, the preacher, the teacher, later on, the police, the judges, the lawyer, the probation, the, the PO. You can't tell me because if I don't know it, it ain't worth knowing. became my philosophy of life. Selfish, self-centered, self-seeking, self-absorbed, according to my mother, mean as a rattlesnake and scared of my own shadow. Um, they got a, a phrase that describes me, basket case. <laughs> egomaniac with an inferiority complex. Y'all know what I'm talking about? And I ain't had a drink yet. I tell people I was the perfectly tilled soil for the disease of alcoholism. All I had to do was water it, and one day I did. I got in a car with a guy whose life I lived in my head. I don't, like I said, I don't live in the real world. Johnny had the life I lived in my head. Snazzy car, pocket full of money. He was known in the bars and gambling spots. He ran around with the kind of girls I ran away from when I seen him coming down the hall. And I got in the car with Johnny, and Johnny looked at me, and he said, Hey, Coleman, you want to get something to drink? If he'd have said to me that day, let's go rob the carry out, I absolutely guarantee you I would have done so. That's how empty I am on the inside. I am desperately seeking an answer to this internal problem. We went. Now, I have been warned about drinking. Alcoholism does not run in my family. It gallops. And I have been told we do not do alcohol well. Look at your Uncle Ed. Look at Junior. Both sides of my family are rife with the disease of alcoholism. And it's a true, that's a true story. We went through the drive-thru. We bought 10 quarts of Slits Malt Liquor Bull. To the youngsters up in here, the quart preceded the 40 ounce. With 32 ounces of beer. Johnny said, five for you and five for me. We cranked up the Parliament Funkadelic and we rolled through the streets of Sandusky and we drank that beer. And what I can tell you is, then is that the magic happened, and it happened immediately, my age. I heard a lot of people talk about the effect produced by alcohol. Silkworth says a sense of ease and comfort. What I can tell you is this. Um, I heard a guy say one time, there comes a moment in the drinking career of every alcoholic might take one day, five years, 20 years, that he takes a drink and alcohol flips the switch. The lights come on. I've heard it said from black and white to technicolor. I went from shy, insecure, and afraid to bold, confident, suave, debonair, and absolutely fearless in about 20 minutes. We went over behind the Derrick apartments where all the thugs hung out. I have not said five words in public in the last three years. We pulled up. The music was blasting. People surrounded the car. I told Johnny, turn that music down. There's a few things I want to tell a few people who are present here this afternoon that I've been wanting to tell them for quite some time. And I went around that circle of hoodlums and told each and every one of them not only what I thought of them, but what they needed to do, in my opinion, to improve themselves. The reaction of the guys around that car on the south side that day was dudes was leaning in the car and hugging me. And they said, see, I told you. I told you he's, he's all right. He's, he's loosening up. He's doing a little drinking. He's one of us. Chuck Chamberlain said, there is but one problem which encompasses all problems, and that is conscious separation from God and our fellow man. And there is but one solution which encompasses all solutions, and that is conscious contact with God and our fellow man. I got conscious contact that day, not with God, but with my fellow man. I got the approval that I always have been seeking. 
And that wasn't from mom and dad. That was from them drive-by shooters behind the Derrick apartments. Alcohol equals success. I connected the dots. You better believe I got it. We left from there. We went over to the home of some of them girls he run around with I run away from. I walked into that home like I was paying the mortgage. <laughs> Never been over there in my life. I sat down at the dining room table, and I looked across the room at what I think is the finest girl to graduate from Sandusky High School in his 171-year history. I had never even breathed in her direction, much less said hello. And I looked over there at her, and she looked up at me, and I said, come here. (laughs) And she got up and started walking toward me. Now, any sane human being at this point would probably think to themselves, gee, Ken, if you wasn't so shy and scared, look what you could have done just by speaking up. Is that what I thought? Absolutely not. Here's what I thought, remembered as clearly as it happened this morning. If you had been drinking before now, look what you could have done. Anybody following this? Look what you've been missing. Alcohol equals success, and you better believe I got it. Now, I said earlier, this is an honest program, and it is, and I'm going to be honest with you tonight. When she got over there to me, I had no idea what to do with her. <laughs> I do not think that far ahead when I'm drinking. My story will bear that out. But I watch a lot of TV. On TV, they go like this. So I did. And she sat down in my lap, and my life changed again. And the upshoot to this whole little story is that on that day, alcohol did for me what I could not do for myself. It altered my perception of reality. It seemed to take, take away the fear. To, for the first time, I guess this is the best way I can say it, for the first time in my life, I felt whole. And that's a very powerful thing. When you read the promises, that's talking about the, uh, uh, an improvement in our spiritual condition. All the promises, don't they? Right? All connected to magic. On that day, alcohol seemed to do. What happened the rest of that day will be the rest of my drinking history. We won't have to go much further than this. Drink trouble. I'm going to tell you this is the kind of drink. Right? If this here was a beer. And I stood here tonight and took a drink. A cop would drop right out of this light and land in the middle of the street. Anybody in here identify with that? What happened the rest of that day? Very simple. I went in a blackout. I have no idea what went on the next four or five hours. According to eyewitnesses at the house... I come in the front door and start throwing up. I threw up a trail. It went through the house, through the living room, through the kitchen, through the family room. My grandfather fell on the floor laughing. I went in the bathroom. I had everything but the toilet. The next thing that I remember is my mother knocking on my bedroom door, screaming, Come out here clean up this mess. You know you've been drinking. Blah, 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 blah. I staggered into the hallway in what later years would be my drinking uniform, my underwear. I'm bouncing off of them hallway walls. I got a hangover that's alive. You can take it out and look at it. I go in the bathroom. I lock the door. I put my hands on the bathroom sink. I look through bloodshot eyes into the mirror, and this is what I said. Man, oh, man, I cannot wait 
to do that again. <laughs> Grounded for life is what was being discussed in the living room <laughs> and how that sentence was going to be carried out. So now let's stop and take a look at it. I'm grounded for life, so I'm immediately facing negative consequences as a result of my drinking, right? Big book comes up, put your hand on a hot stove. You don't do it again, right? Here's, so I'm in the bathroom, and I decide to have a meeting with myself. Now, I always like to have a meeting with myself because I seem to be able to solve most everything that's going on. So I had a meeting with myself, and here's what I come up with. All right, Ken, let's take a look at what happened tonight. You got drunk? Yep. You got sick? Yep. And you are grounded for life. Yes, this is true. Now, the reason that you got grounded for life, Kent, is not because you got drunk. The reason you got grounded for life is because you got sick. What you got to do is learn how to drink without getting sick. Is anybody following this? And I was gone. I never looked back. They talk about in here erosion of the soul. You know what erosion is? You know how, and, and you can't see it, right? But every day it just chips away. And chips. I'm not a guy who comes to the podium and talks to you about and glorifies. Was there a period of time that I felt alcohol worked for me? Sure. Why? Well, I kept doing it. Right? I came into AA. I'm grateful for the old timers where I live. I came into AA and I sat in a meeting, and, and I was a parrot. You got any more parrots in here in AA? You hear something sound good, so you say it. Because it seems people say, yes, that's, you know, pat them on the back. So I said, boy, I sure had a good time drinking. Because when I heard people say that, everybody in the room would go, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Doggone old timer was in there. He said, really? Did you have a good time drinking, did you? He said, let me ask you a question, Kent. So if we brought your mother, your father, the girl you live with, your employer, your creditors, and your neighbors in here, and we said, Ken had a really good time drinking. What kind of time did y'all have? What do you think they'd say? I said, I don't want to have that meeting. You know what my definition of a good time is? Any consequences that have to be paid as a result of my drinking are paid by somebody else. How many sleepless nights did I visit on my parents? How many days' work did I cheat my employer out of? How many bills went un- and obligations went unmet? But I'm having a good... I'm so full of me. They gave me a car when I was 16. I had a 1 o'clock curfew, which I broke regularly. So I was grounded a lot. And one night I heard on the radio about a place called the Shade Nightclub in Toledo, Ohio. With my fake ID in my pocket and a three-piece suit on my back, I went to Toledo, it was in the wintertime, to the Shade Nightclub, which was not the beautiful Shade Nightclub as described on the radio. (laughs) However, it didn't make no difference. I was in the Shade Nightclub at the age of 16, drinking a gin and juice and dancing with a woman older than my mother. And I come home at 4.30 in the morning. Now, my mom was always up. when I, Anybody else's mama up when you came home? And she would yell out the bedroom when I'd come in the front door, Kenny, come here, I want to see. And I'd stick my head around the corner. And this is what I would always say to my mom. Why are you up? What is wrong with you people? 
If y'all go somewhere, I don't sit up here at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning waiting on y'all. What is wrong? I want you to understand something. I'm 16 years old. I cannot comprehend the love of a parent for a child. I am so self-centered and so self-obsessed and so full of me, I can't see you. Spiritual malady, soul sickness. I came home this night. Mama wasn't in the bedroom. She was sitting on the couch. The living room lamp was on. I opened the front door. There's tears running down her face. And this is what my mama said to me. Boy, as your mom and dad, with your, your roof over your head, clothes on your back, education. She said, we've, we've done all that, Kenny. She said, but I got something that you can't have. She said, that's my peace of mind. She said, Kenny, you're going to penitentiary or the cemetery. And I got a message for you, buddy. I ain't going with you. I'm done. Go. Do what you want. I'm giving you to God. I am done. And this is what I said to my mom. I broke you. I broke you, and I want you to know something, Mama. You're such a spiritual giant. I said, I'm a little bit disappointed. And I walked away from my mother. Drank my way through college. Went to one of the best schools in the country. My attitude toward that was... I got the grades to get in there, and I didn't ask to be born, so you should pay. Just when I got there with no parental interference, I I became an animal. Still making amends to that institution to this day. And I've been gone from there since 1981. And I am. And they welcome it. Thank God. Five deaths of alcohol and drugs in the past school year. And they welcome my help. Thank God for AA. I, uh, had the shakes by the time I was 19 years old. And um, I went down to the Boar's Head Inn where I had set up headquarters. And I told Tom, the bartender, who's kind of just like my sponsor. I said, Tom, I think I got Parkinson's. <laughs> Say you're 19 years old, you got Parkinson's. He says, I'll tell you what I want you to do. I want you to go to get a fifth, a hundred-proof old granddad. When you get up in the morning, drink two shots, I guarantee you, your hands will stop shaking. Got the granddad, got up the next day shaking like a leaf. I drank two shots, and my hands stopped shaking. You know what I said? That man is a genius. <laughs> now, my sponsor, Bill, pointed out to me when I came into AA, he said, do you notice that you never questioned the bartender? You were surrounded by family, coaches, academic advisors, all these people who loved you and cared about you, and all you ever said to them was, I'm grown, it's my life, and I ain't hurting nobody. But you never questioned the bartender. To the new, our new friends in here tonight, why is it that I'm always willing to listen to the people who harm me? Why is that? Worm turn, Bill story. When you see the progression of alcoholism, oh my God. I read the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous when I got a sponsor and I started going to a good book study and it scared me half to death because I thought whoever wrote this has been following me around. <laughs> now I read Bill's story became Kent's story and I saw the progression in Bill's life, right? How he started out with goals and hopes and dreams and aspirations, so did I. And at some point, alcoholism became the center. And I constructed my life to accommodate my drinking as opposed to my goals. I got out of college and went to work in an auto factory. You do not need a college education to do that. Why did I do it? Because it accommodated my drinking.
We drank, I drank on the job. I was 22 years old. I could not work an eight-hour shift. I worked a midnight shift, less bosses to catch me. You follow me? I set, alcohol is now the center of my life. And, and like I say, I'm gone. And uh, I don't talk much about the, the, the legal stuff. It's a podium fact. I've been convicted of driving under the influence of alcohol in the state of Ohio seven times. Um, felony weapons charge. I've been in a lot of trouble. If you're new in here, not a requirement to be here. You can get off the, you can get off the elevator any floor. We don't have a jail requirement here. At the end of my drinking, no baths, no showers. I got a liver that's distended about seven inches. Um, I live like an animal. I live in a house that ain't got no front door on it. Um, the drug task force knocked it down. I never bothered to put it back up because I figured they'll be back. <laughs> a cousin of mine came by there one day with my mom. There was literally beer cans in there three feet deep. Old plates, paper plates, gnats all over the place. And I'm on the couch passed out. And my cousin told me later, I stood in the door with your mom and she just stood there and looked at you and cried. But I ain't hurting nobody. I'm having a good time, huh? The last three years, I've tried everything I could think of to stop. I went back to church. I hold the record for reinstatement at the Ebenezer Baptist Church. I could tell you, they always knew when I was coming, they read the paper. <laughs> we'll see Kenny Sunday. They got him again. Right? When the heat is on, baby, that's how I get my mother in my corner. Because, see, my family, that's what they do, and that works for them. Right? So I go where they go. And I sincerely was trying. I used to look at my mom. She got it. How do you get it? Because I can see it glowing from the inside. How do you get it? See, it's like I'm over here. God's over here. And I can't get there. I know he's there, but I can't get there. And I'm frustrated and I drink. I used to sit up at night with a Bible in this hand and a Miller High Life in this hand. And that ain't a joke. I can't shut it off. I dropped dead of a heart attack when I was 28 Two hours out of the cardiac unit, two days later, I'm drunk in the hospital. And I wasn't doing that because I'd rather be drunk than sober. I was doing that because I'm powerless over alcohol and my life is unmanageable. If I had the power to quit on my own, I'd have never come here. And then I gave up. Um, a lot of people talk about love and hate. I was capable of neither when I got here. Where I was at when I got here... Um, was a place where there's no day, night, right, wrong, good, evil, God, devil. I come from a place of cold-blooded, cold-hearted indifference. I could care less whether you live or die. I, I really could care less. And I believe that's as far away from God as a human. Came out of a bar called the Pump Lounge. 11.30 at night, got to be to work at midnight. I got five years in the penitentiary hanging over my head. I was sentenced to five years in the state penitentiary, you know, Judge said, my uncle, my mother's brother, was the mayor of Sandusky. My family was very powerful and very connected and very successful in a lot. And the judge said, before I throw you away, give you one more chance. A period of indefinite probation, a dirty urine. I'm going to send you to penitentiary for five years. You got one of the most dismal records I've ever seen, and we're tired of this. And I walked out of there, and I swore to God, and I meant it as much as I mean it today. I'll never drink again. Um, I showed up. Knee walking drunk, my first time reporting. 
And I didn't do that because I'd rather be in the penitentiary than be free. And I come out of the pump lounge and I had what they call a moment of clarity or a moment of sanity. It's a guy in Cleveland, six-pack Charlie Kitchen. And he said that that's the moment when God paralyzes the liar in you long enough. And for the first time in almost 20 years, cleared, and this is what I saw. Kent, you got to stop drinking and you got to stop now. And you better get some help because you can't do it. And you better do it quick because you I didn't know. And I went home and I called my best drinking buddy from college who's a doctor today. And um, I owed him five grand. Hadn't paid him a dime. Didn't even know if he'd take a call from me. And his wife answered the phone, and this is what she said and how she said it. Richard is Kent. And Richard got on the phone, and he said, what's up? I said, Richard's your He said, man, I've been waiting for this call for seven or eight years. Pack a bag. Stay by the phone. When I get a call from the North Central Intergroup Office of Alcoholics Anonymous in Sandusky, Ohio, at 3 o'clock in the morning, you know what I tell the guy on the other end? Pack a bag. And for that Somebody's going to put me in treatment in Xenia, Ohio. It's down by Dayton. It's 225 miles from where I was living. Um, he was living in Centerville. And uh, put me in the back seat of the car, my brother and his wife in the front seat. I'm in the back seat with a case of Genesee beer. Now, I didn't know too much about treatment, but I had figured out on my own they wasn't serving no liquor down there. And uh, so we're shooting down I-75. And I got three or four of them cold jennies in me, and y'all know something, don't you? I had a visit from the enemy, my thinking, on my way to treatment. And here's the thought that occurred to me. You know, I just may have overreacted here. <laughs> Man, it ain't that bad. Right? The effect produced by alcohol. And you can't, really, I'll start my comeback tomorrow, right? What I didn't know is that my daddy told my brother and his wife, I'll give you $100, you don't bring that tramp back here. That's a true story. <laughs> and we got down there, and um, Rich put me in his car, and he bought me a quart of Miller's. Said it was always your favorite. He drove me from his home in Centerville to Green Memorial Hospital in Xenia treatment. We pulled in the parking lot of that hospital, and he put his car in park. And he turned, and he looked at me, and I had this much left in that quart. And he said, go ahead, dog, finish that, and don't ask me how I know him, man. He said, that's the last drink you're ever going to take. That was the 17th of May, 1992. I have not had another drop of alcohol or anything stronger than the aspirin since that day. No, that's for you. That's for you. That's for you. That's because God, the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous and the service structure, the three legacies of Alcoholics Anonymous work if applied. I don't have the power to stay strong. My history abundantly proves that. Got out of detox in A.O. They sent me to men's group. They had men reading out loud stories of their drinking in the streets. The counselor looks at me and says, Ken, it's your first day in treatment. What do you think about what you heard here today? I said, I'll tell you what I think about what I heard, Jim. <laughs> well, I'm down here for a few days to get help for this small problem I might have. I would like to volunteer my time, service, and energy to help you with these people because these are the sickest people I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> that one statement got me an extra week of treatment. I spent 35 days in the 28-day program. They brought me down to the nurse's station the next morning where my enemy married a nurse who was 28 years sober in AA, hung a sign around my neck this big. It said, I am not a counselor. I had to wear it for a whole week. 
Next day they had me write and read to the group. I did. I got done. Jim said, put your chair in the middle of the room. Let's make a circle around Kent and tell him what we think of him. I'll start the ball rolling by saying, Kent's so full of BS, his eyes are turning brown. If you threw him in water, he'd float away. That was the nicest thing that was said in that room that day. And what them guys told me that day was if I didn't get honest with myself, I was going to leave that place and I was going to die. The only thing we did in 35 days, the only thing they did with me was step one. I did not write an inventory before I left treatment or any I heard. 35 days. And I got out of treatment and I came home and I began to play a game. It's called don't drink, go to meetings, and don't do nothing else. If I put my arm through a window and I cut an artery in my arm, I start bleeding all over the floor, put a towel on my arm, I drive to the hospital, I run in the emergency room and sit down. The doctor comes out and says, come on back, Mr. Coleman, we'll treat you now. I sit there in the emergency room bleeding to death, look at the doctor and say, no, thank you, I'll just sit here. And I bleed to death in the emergency room. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the emergency room. And um, I went to 250 meetings and ended up in the parking lot of dailies. See, I thought alcohol was a problem and I ain't drinking. But I'm coming apart. I'm screaming at people at work. I can't sleep. I won't even tell you about my behavior in AA. And nobody told me don't come back. He said, come back tomorrow, Kent. I had no sponsor, no nothing. And I ended up in the parking lot of Daly's Pub vibrating. I wanted to drink so bad. Thank God I went to all those meetings. Because I knew that there was something that could be done about it. And I knew who to go to. And I did. And I ran into a meeting. And I went to a man. I said, would you help me? And he said, I will help you. And he said, here's what I'm going to give you. He said, I'm going to give you what I got. He said, I'm going to give you what was given to me, and that is the 12 steps of this program is outlined by the, in this book. I will walk with you through that process, and I will show you how I live these principles. You know, they call it 12 steps, a kit of spiritual tools. I love it. I got two boxes in my house. I ain't never seen them walk across the floor and fix a thing. The only value of a tool is if I pick it up and use it. The only value of these steps is if they're applied to my life. I've stood behind podiums of AA all over the world at this point in my life. I've never attended a meeting where somebody stands up and says, works if you know it. <laughs> and my sponsor took me through the steps of the program as I try to live them in my life today. You want to hear more about the steps? Be at Ralph and Ronnie's workshop the next two days. And you will hear that. What I will tell you is I had opportunity to make amends to my mom before she died. I moved back into my mother and father's house because I was living in a spot. I wasn't living in the house. Y'all. And um, I couldn't stay sober there. I went back to my mom and dad's house. My dad said, won't slip up and you're out of here because we're really sick of you. And I moved back into that home and my mother was dying of bone cancer. And for the next year and a half, I got to help. I got to help my dad take my mom. And my sponsor told me, don't you go in there with none of that I'm sorry crap. Why don't you try something you've never done? Why don't you go into that house and be the kind of son God put you on this earth to be and keep your mouth shut? And I did. My mom saw me go to all those AA meetings. My mom saw me bring my first sponsees into that house to sit down at the kitchen and open the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. My mom would see me put on a shirt and a tie and go speak at AA meetings when I didn't even have a suit. When she got close to the end, my sponsor said, it's time to do your direct. I went to the hospital. They got my mom off the morphine. And I had a big speech plan. And I went in there, and she had tears running down her face. My mother had the biggest brown eyes. My mother was a beautiful lady. And I had tears running down my face, and the only thing that I could say to her was, "My Same words, right? But there was action behind them. 
And my mother, she beamed at me and she said, I forgive you. She said, Kenny, I want you to promise me that you'll stay with those people and for you. They did for you what we and I promised her that I would. Promised her I wouldn't. My dad died. Uh, I was 18 years sober when my dad died. We had a great relationship. My dad saw me. I got married when I was about three years sober. Um, he saw the birth of my two daughters. Um, we had a great relationship. Got married in here. Um, I got two daughters now. They're 18 and 13. And um, they look like my, my ex-wife and my mother combined. I got some beautiful girls. And they... They act just like me. Stay tuned. I don't listen. <laughs> Actually, no, they don't. That's a joke. My, my girls are, they are, they literally are. Um, I've been blessed beyond measure. Um, got divorced 20 years sober. Um, went to Vegas. Um, was there with my sponsor, Bob. I'm back home. I was too far away from my children. And I'm back in Ohio. Um, I'm a major for the second largest automotive supplier in the world. I'm back to building cars. Um, but I was the director of Stella Maris, which is the second oldest treatment in three years. I've, I've done, I, I ran a program for disabled people. We started a manufacturing company that is now going nationwide that employs all developmentally disabled from scratch. God has been awfully good to me. <laughs> awfully good to me. No. And, um. I got divorced. I thought my life is over, but my life wasn't over. My life was just become. And if you're in that, in, that, in that place where you know you got a major thing going in your, on in your life right now and you're in that dark place, um, you have the things that you need and you through. you got God, you got this fellowship, and you got these steps. And I'm going to tell you something my sponsor told me. Um, I used to wind up my sponsor bill all the time um, about the people not treating me right in life. And Bill used to say, who you helping? And I say, you're not listening, Bill. <laughs> and I'd run through it again. And he would say, who are you helping? Click. If selfishness and self-centeredness is the root of the problem, unselfishness is the root of the solution. Service is the principle of the 12th step. The highest designation one can is that of servant. That's what the whole thing. The more you give, get. And that's how this works. They gave me a tape of Warren Chisholm Sr. when I came in here, 12th man in AA in Cleveland. In that tape, he made this statement that anyone who comes here who is willing to practice the principles and precepts of this program is outlined in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Need never drink again one day at a time. He was a friend of my sponsor, Bill. I ran to Bill. I said, he can't say that, Bill. And Bill said, say what? I said, never drink again a day at a time. He can't say that. Bill said, yes, he can, Kent. He said, I'm going to tell you why. He says, because this is a spiritual program. And God doesn't fail. There is no failure here. There is no element of failure connected to this program. God doesn't fail. If this don't work for me, it's because I have not fulfilled the conditions that have been laid down. God will not do for me what I can do for myself. Those who do get. And those who don't, don't. And it's just that simple. If I said anything to help you tonight, thank God, don't thank me. And if I didn't say nothing to help you tonight, guess what? It's some more meetings tomorrow. <laughs> God does not make too hard turns with those who seek Him. God could and would 
if he were sought, abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. Good night, Nashville.